Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and need one, you could probably slip your hand in the air and somebody would bring one to you. Nehemiah chapter 1. I started a series on Nehemiah last Sunday. We looked at uh, just the first three verses Last Sunday, we'll be focusing today on verses 4 through 11, but we will start reading in just a minute back at verse 1. We'll just read verse 1 all the way through 11. So Nehemiah 1, verse 1. Let's pray, and let's go ahead and stand to pray this morning. You've been sitting for a minute. I'll let you uh, rest here. Stand up just a sec. So Father, we look to you now. We just open your word, and we just acknowledge this is your word. Father, we believe you breathe this out for our good, and we just look to you now and ask for help. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit now. Just pray, Lord God, that as we look into your word, that you would not let us walk away unchanged. Father, you take this word through our minds and you would hit our affections with it. And Father, we would begin to find our joy in you, maybe for the first time today for some of us, or Uh, or again um, for others of us, finding our joy in you, in your word. Lord, just uh, our affections gripped by the beauties of of Christ, by your truth. We just ask for your help. Lord God, we, we, we come together every Sunday just desperately needing you. Lord, we put a service together, we do certain things, but we know, Lord God, it's just like filling a water pot with water, and, and still, Lord Jesus, you're the only one who can turn the water, the water into wine. And so we would just ask that you would turn water into wine this morning for us and fill our hearts with good things. God, you bless us, you help us, you push away sin, you push away distractions, you be merciful to us, Father, today again in Christ, and help us today, we pray. Lord God, we need you. Lord Jesus, we need you. We just offer five loaves and two fish lifted up to you today, Lord Jesus, and ask that you would break it. You would bless it and you'd feed us with your word. Help us, Lord God, we pray. We trust you'll do it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Peter Drucker in one of his leadership books, I had to read it uh, in seminary, one of his leader, leadership books, Peter Drucker has a chapter in that book titled First Things First. And it's a chapter on priorities. Peter Drucker says the most effective leaders do first things first. They identify the tasks of first importance and they then do those first things First And Nehemiah was a great leader, and we will see him in this passage doing first things first. Let let me quickly remind you of the background for this book. Several hundred years before Nehemiah was ever born, the people of Israel were, were sinning against God in major ways, and God's judgment finally came on them. 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and invaded the city of Jerusalem. They tore the city walls to the ground, set fire to the temple, killed lots of Jews, and took many more Jews into exile in Babylon, some 900 miles away. 
But God remained faithful to His people. And after the Jews had lived there in Babylon for some time, the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. And the Bible says that God then stirred up the heart of the king of Persia, a man named Cyrus, who then wrote a decree that the Jews should return to Jerusalem. And the Jews then returned to Jerusalem in three waves. The first wave left, left Babylon or left Persia under Zerubbabel who, who rebuilt the temple. Uh, Eighty years later then, the second wave of exiles left Jerusalem under Ezra who brought spiritual reform to the people there in Jerusalem. And this right here is now 13 years after Ezra returned, Nehemiah is still back in exile, and Nehemiah will soon lead the third and final wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. In the opening three verses here, Nehemiah learns that the Jews back in Jerusalem at this time are still in great trouble and shame. The city walls and gates, which the Babylonians destroyed some 150 years ago, are still destroyed. And Nehemiah will return to build. He will return to build the walls of Jerusalem. He will build parts of the city. And most importantly, he will build the people, leading them back to God. And this is an incredibly difficult task for Nehemiah uh, to return and rebuild Jerusalem. It's really an impossible task for Nehemiah. The Jews had been back there in Jerusalem for some 80 years and still hadn't been able to rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah will attempt to do it. And how does Nehemiah start? Well, maybe not like you'd expect. He, he doesn't sit down here first and, and draw up building plans and, and, and assemble a construction team and, and raise funds. No, first thing first, Nehemiah drops to his knees and he prays for many, many days. Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in Jerusalem, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me 
and keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants, O God, and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. You know, you and I, when faced with difficult tasks, when we are, we're faced with some seemingly impossible tasks, some of us probably don't pray first. You, 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 you may plan when you're looking at a difficult task. You, you may rally other people. You, you, you may give orders. You, you spring into action to hit the task head on. You look to yourself, your own abilities, your own resources, a self-sufficiency. But Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah was a man of constant prayer. We will actually see Nehemiah praying some nine times in this short book. It's one of the reasons I chose to preach through this book. I just preached a series on prayer and I thought it would be helpful now to look at this man of prayer. And in this first prayer that Nehemiah prays right here, he actually reinforces something that we talked about in our prayer series. We covered in that prayer series some of the major parts or elements of prayer. Some topics that we might cover in our prayers. I gave you an acrostic. Four letters. A-C-T-H. Each letter stands for one key element of prayer that you can find in the Bible. Adoration. Confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and and Nehemiah's prayer here actually contains all four of those elements in that order. Nehemiah's prayer here is a model for us. God is teaching us here how to pray. You know, a lot of people today, they say, well, well, prayer is, is it's just talking to God. Say anything you want in, in prayer, and, and that's true to some degree. If you truly trust in Christ, you are a child of of God and you're free to ramble like a child in prayer. Say anything to your Father in heaven. But here's the thing. As a child gets older, a child talks to his father a little differently. You know, when, when one of my kids who will remain unnamed, was little, he, he uh, which narrows it down to two, would always just say chi all the time. Chi, 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 chi. And we wrestled with that and finally figured out that he was asking us for Cheerios. <laughs> Basically demanding from us Cheerios. But you know, that uh, boy has now grown and he talks to us a little more maturely. And, and that's how it is with prayer. When, when you pray as a new believer, you, you might talk a little more immaturely. Maybe, maybe you just ask God for things all the time. That's all you know to do. But as you grow in Christ, you learn to talk a little more maturely. Yes, still ask God for things, but, but, but now you're not just asking for things for yourself all the time. 
Now, now, now you're learning to pray a little more for, for God's things. Like in the Lord's Prayer, praying about God's name. Praying about God's kingdom. Praying about God's will. You're learning as you mature as a believer. You're learning to pray kingdom-focused prayers. And Nehemiah's prayer here, it is a model of mature, kingdom-focused prayer. He covers all four elements of that ACTS acrostic. Let's just walk through his prayer here. First thing we see here in his prayer is the letter A, adoration. You look at verse 4, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words about the destruction there in Jerusalem, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was absolutely crushed to hear this news of his homeland. He wept, he mourned for days. He says he continued in fasting and prayer. He will say later that he continued night and day in fasting and prayer. How long did Nehemiah continue in fasting and prayer? Well, he actually connects the dots for us. Nehemiah says in verse 1 that he started praying in the month of Kislev. And in chapter 2, he says his prayer was answered in the month of Nisan. That is a period of some three to five months that Nehemiah prayed and fasted before God night and day, crying out to him. This was a persistent, ongoing prayer and fasting for days. And that's a kingdom type of prayer. You, you don't just pray once and then quit. No, you persevere in prayer. You pray relentlessly, tenaciously, ongoing prayer. And the prayer right here is, is, is probably just an example of the prayers that Nehemiah prayed for all of those days. And his prayers, which he prayed all of those days, they included adoration. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Just opening, opening His persistent prayers with praise. Just glorifying God, exalting God for His name, His attributes, His, his character. Just praising God in, in His prayers, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer that we should hallow God's name. And man, Nehemiah did it. Not just asking for things in prayer, but praising God in prayer. And listen, that praise in your prayers, it is glorifying to God. But do you know what? It is also very empowering to you. Do you realize when you praise God in your prayers, you are being reminded of who God is? His character, His love, His faithfulness, His personhood, His power, His might, His justice, your heart is being raised up towards God as you praise Him in your prayers. Nehemiah is doing that here, just praising God. And listen, every word of his adoration here is important. Nehemiah says here, he says, Oh Lord, God of heaven... And that phrase, God of heaven, that was, that was a particular phrase that the Jews in exile in particular used all the time. Because when they called God, God of heaven, they were reminding themselves that God is not just the God over the land of Israel. He's the land over the entire earth. He's, he's, he's even God 
over places like Babylon and Persia, far away places. Nehemiah, you're the great, goes in next, says you're the, you're the great and awesome God. You're all powerful. You're almighty God. You can do anything in heaven and earth. You're a God who does the impossible. And again, just lifting his heart up to God and being reminded of who God is as he's sitting here in exile. And Nehemiah then goes on and says, you're also a God who keeps covenant. You keep steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. You're a covenant-keeping God, he says. All the Jews back then would have understood God being a covenant-keeping God. And man, there is something right there that we desperately need to grasp in order to understand this entire book. We, we, we really need to understand some things about what the Bible calls the Old Covenant. A covenant in Bible times. It was an agreement between two parties. It was a type of contract. A covenant was a bond in blood between two parties. If two people made a covenant with one another to, to protect one another, maybe, well, they would, they would get together, they'd take an animal, they would cut it in two, blood everywhere, and then they would speak some vows to one another. I promise to defend you. I promise to be with you. I promise to fight for you always. And if I ever fail to do that, if I ever break covenant with you, may God do to me what has happened to this animal. It was a bond in blood between two parties. And and here's the thing. In the Old Testament books in the Bible, the first 39 books in the Bible, after the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, God graciously made a number of covenants with different people from our fallen race. People like Noah and Abraham and Moses and so on. God made all of these gracious little different covenants and yet all of those covenants were, were, were interrelated and, and organically connected. They, they all built on one another. All of them adding another piece to, to God's one big plan of redemption in the Bible. All of them ultimately building toward the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the particular Old Testament covenant that's so important for our passage today is the one that God made with the people of Israel through Moses. I don't know if you caught it, but in Nehemiah's prayer, he mentions the name of Moses a couple times. Now that covenant that God made with Moses, it had been made some 1,000 years before Nehemiah was ever born at Mount Sinai in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. God had just delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. They were now heading toward the promised land from which they have now been exiled. But back then they were heading toward the promised land and God met them at Mount Sinai and through Moses, God made a covenant with them. That was when God gave them the Old Testament law, the, the Ten Commandments, or, or, or the moral law. 
and all the other laws that flowed out of that moral law, the the laws for the priesthood, the laws for the sacrifices and different things. And the New Testament books call that, that Mosaic covenant the Old Covenant. And that Old Covenant, it had some stipulations. God promised in that Old Covenant that He would be with Israel. He would bless them if they would continue to love Him and prove that they still loved Him by obeying His laws. God would then keep His covenant with Israel, keep His promises to be with and to bless them. God said this in Deuteronomy 7-9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. This is an old covenant statement from God. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And after God made that covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, God did keep His covenant. When when they loved and obeyed God, He was with them and blessed them. A covenant-keeping God. He always upheld His side of the deal. And in the book of Nehemiah here, it's important, important to know that the Jews were still functioning under that old Mosaic covenant, under those stipulations. And Nehemiah praises God in his prayer here. Verse 5 for being a covenant-keeping God, for keeping His old covenant promises with those who loved and obeyed Him. And we'll get back to that in a second. Let's file that away. So, Nehemiah's persistent prayers here, they included adoration, praising, exalting God. And God wants those of us who are believers to do the same in prayer. Jesus tells us to hallow God's name in, in our prayers. So let me encourage you. Spend time in your prayers praising God for His character, His, his attributes, his, his, his nature. Grab scriptures and just pray them that, that tell you about God and remind And praise Him. Thank you, God. I praise you for these things right here. That will glorify God, but it will also empower you, reminding you who God is. And the second thing in this prayer here, the second letter in that ACTS acrostic is C, confession. And Nehemiah now confesses his sin and the sin of the entire nation. You look at verse 6. Let your ear, O God, be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned, O Lord God. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We've not done what you asked us to do. You upheld your part of the bargain. We have not upheld our part of the bargain. 
And you know, you just pause right there and you just consider now. Think about what Nehemiah is looking at right here. When when Nehemiah here, still living in exile with other Jews, 900 miles away from Israel, he, he hears that the Jews in Jerusalem are in great trouble and shame, walls broken down, gates destroyed, etc., As Nehemiah looks out in his mind at this devastation, do you realize that one word was probably exploding in Nehemiah's mind? You know what the word was? Curse. 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 And why? You know the stipulations of that old Mosaic covenant? God had promised that if the Jews obeyed Him, they would be blessed. But God also promised in that old covenant that if the Jews disobeyed Him, if they did not continue to love Him and they proved they didn't love Him by disobeying His laws, well, God promised that He would then curse them. His wrath, His judgment unleashed against them for their sin and Israel's situation here at the start of the book of Nehemiah. Exile, the city destroyed, the the fire, the devastation, the trouble, the shame. That is the very picture of God's curse. Nehemiah knows it. That he right now is staring directly into the curse of God's old covenant law. His wrath is judgment for our sin. Listen, when God made this old covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, God promised that those exact things would happen. You can see it right here in Leviticus 26, 27. God had said this when he made the covenant with Israel. But if you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I will lay your cities waste. And I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Or this here in Deuteronomy 28, God also talking about this this old covenant. He said this, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. The curses... Of God's, of God's old covenant, Mosaic law. If you obey, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, you'll be cursed. 
And God summed it all up right here in Deuteronomy 30, 19. Here it is, very simply. God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And as Nehemiah sits here in Persia looking at this devastation, he knows we didn't choose life. We didn't choose blessing. We chose death. We chose curse. In our disobedience to God. In our lack of love for God. We chose this. It was us. He knows he's staring directly into the curse of God's law. So Nehemiah now confesses sin in prayer. For months, for months, not just one time, sit down, confess, get up. For months he's confessing the sins of the nation of Israel and even his own sin. And man, that's wild when you think about it. Do you realize that Nehemiah was probably born in exile? He wasn't there in Jerusalem when they sinned and were initially exiled. And yet Nehemiah owns the nation. He knows they've all sinned. He knows it. He knows sitting here in Persia that he's also a sinner who's violated God's moral laws in different ways. And he knows he also deserves this curse of God's law. He may not have sinned just like the people who were initially exiled, but he knows that he's still a sinner just like them. And he confesses. He confesses for the nation. He confesses for his family. He confesses for himself. We have sinned. We have. Us. Our. Not kept your old covenant mosaic laws. And listen. Even here today, God does want us to confess our sins in prayer too. And listen, not just confessing your own individual sin. But you know, also confessing at times the sins of your people. The sins of your family, maybe. Or confessing the sins of your church. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't teach us to say, Father, forgive me for my debts. He teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us for our debts. A corporate confession of sin, that's a kingdom-focused confession. It's not just I have sinned, but we have sinned. Forgive us, Father, for the way we've grumbled against you. Forgive us for the way we've mistreated and dishonored one another. Forgive us, Father, for neglecting the lost. Forgive us, Father, our debts. And Nehemiah then moves to a third element of prayer here. The third letter in that ACTS acrostic. The letter T standing for thanksgiving. Now, Nehemiah... When you look through his prayer here, you won't find the exact words, I thank you, God. But listen, I think Nehemiah does here express some deep thanks and gratitude toward God. If you look at verse 8, he prays, oh God, remember the word 
that you commanded your servant Moses. Now he's drawing from old scripture that was older than him. Remember, O oh Lord, the word that you commanded to, to Moses, your servant, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But remember, Lord, that you also said, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants, O God, and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And man, can you just follow through and see what Nehemiah is doing here? Once again, he's looking back to the promises of that old Mosaic covenant. God had promised in that covenant, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. But God also promised in that covenant that if the people disobeyed and were cursed and were scattered from the land, If they would confess their sin and return to him and obey his laws again, he'd bring them back to the land and he would bless them once again. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. God said this when he made that old covenant. He said this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice that all, in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then, here's the promise, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens. From there the Lord your God will gather you. And Nehemiah remembers that promise. He remembers the promise that God had given in his word. His prayer is a scriptural prayer, just laced with the word of God. He remembers the promise that if they disobeyed, they'd be cursed. But he also remembers the promise that if they then returned in confession and obedience, God would restore them and bring them back to the land and bless them yet again. And Nehemiah here, he remembers it and he just prays it back to God. I think in his heart, there's just a deep thankfulness in his heart. Why? Because now Israel has a chance. They have a chance to be restored, not because they are able, but because God is a covenant-keeping God who upholds his promises. Nehemiah, I think he's just so grateful in his heart. But listen, Nehemiah isn't just thankful for that promise of return here. No, Nehemiah just stands on that promise here. He digs his heels into that promise. He reminds God of that promise. And he trusts God that God will be faithful to his word. You said, God, That even if we were scattered to the uttermost parts of the heaven for our sin, but if we return to you, you bring us back to the land and we are scattered, God. Here here I am in Persia, scattered for our sin. But we are now returning to you, Lord God, 
in confession, hear my confessions, we're returning to you, O God, we're returning to you, we want to obey you, O Lord God, and I'm trusting God that you will be faithful to your word and bring us back to the land and help us to rebuild. You ever seen the fiddler on the roof? The fiddler on the roof, Tevia. The main character, you got to love that guy. <laughs> the main character, when he's in a conversation with people, he will frequently say to them, you know what the good book says. <laughs> man, I almost hit the accent too. <laughs> that worked. <laughs> and, and man, and then he always, after he says it, he always quotes from some Old Testament scripture, almost always taking the scripture grossly out of context <laughs> when he applies it. Uh, and when Tevia's milk cow pulls up lame one day. Uh, he's frustrated with this. And in his prayer to God, he says, you know what the good book says. And then he covers his mouth and says, I'm telling you what the good book says. <laughs> and he kind of laughs over it. But that, that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. Lord God, you know what the good book says. Because you wrote it. You know the promises that you've given to your people. And Nehemiah is just holding on to God's promises saying, You promised, God. You promised. You promised. And you are a covenant-keeping God. You always have been. And this is part of your old covenant that if we would return in confession, you would bring us back and restore us. I think we can apply that to our lives and our prayers a little bit. God loves it when we trust Him. God loves it when you trust His Word. Do you know there are thousands of promises in the Bible? Just read through the Bible and grab some of those promises and hold on to those promises and pray those promises back to God and dig your heels into those promises and say, God, you promised and I'm trusting now that you will be faithful to your Word. Just encourage you to do that in your prayers. Go into the scriptures and pray those things back to God. Cling to those things and see, see what God does. Because he loves it when people trust him. And he loves to be faithful to his word. So adoration, we've seen that. Confession, we've seen thanksgiving. And the final thing in this prayer here, the final letter in that ACTS acrostic is S. Supplication. And you know, if you look through Nehemiah's prayers, he, he's already lifted up several supplications or requests to God. He, he said, oh, oh God, um, hear this prayer that I'm offering up to, to you now. Uh, he's asked God to remember his promises. But at the very end of the prayer here, Nehemiah prays here what may have been his most pressing request at this time. If you look at verse 11, he says, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah indicates right there, first of all, that he was not the only one praying during this three to five month period. He mentions there some 
other servants of God who were also praying. Friends of his, maybe there in, in, in Persia, maybe, maybe family members who had joined him in this several month persistent vigil of prayer. And man, that's a, that's a kingdom focused type of prayer. You, you, you don't just pray alone. Pray for yourself and the needs of your family. But, but you also pray with others. You pray for God's things with other believers. Praying for God's name to be hallowed, His kingdom to come, His will to be done. That's a kingdom-focused prayer. It's a gathering of the people and praying, beseeching God, pleading with God for something. We are starting a monthly kingdom prayer night, last Sunday of every month, just gathering together here to pray for those type of God things. His name, His kingdom, His will. Really encourage you to come and join us. There's power when the people of God get together and pray. And man, Nehemiah and his friends, as they're praying together, they are lifting up a particular request, asking God to, to, to give Nehemiah success in the sight of some man. And who's the man? Well, Nehemiah tells us. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah's talking about the king here. Nehemiah and his friends were asking God to give Nehemiah favor with the current king in Persia, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. And they're now praying that God will give Nehemiah favor with the king. Why? Because Nehemiah is planning to go to the king and ask the king if he can lead a group of people 900 miles to rebuild Jerusalem. And you can't tell just from a cursory reading of, of this text, but this king here, Artaxerxes, he might be the biggest obstacle to the entire building project. Because this king recently decreed that all building in Jerusalem must stop. If you look in the book of Ezra, you see that the Jews who were already in Jerusalem at this time, they had already attempted to build those walls. And King Artaxerxes put a stop to it. The enemies of the Jews began to work on his anxieties. and They began to tell the king, man, if you let them rebuild that city, they're going to be safe. They're going to turn a revolt against the Persian Empire. And Artaxerxes wrote a royal decree to stop all of the building in Jerusalem. And the king must now somehow be persuaded to overturn his decree. Nehemiah could very easily be killed for going to the king and asking if he could lead a group back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Man, the king's heart must now somehow be changed. A huge obstacle, impossible really, for no one can ultimately change another person's heart. But Nehemiah knows that God can Nehemiah knows that God can even change the heart of a king. Proverbs 21.1 says this. Connor, if you throw that up. 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Donald Trump's heart is like water in the hands of the Lord. The Lord turns it wherever he will. God can change a person's heart, but man, it happens through prayer. Hudson Taylor, a longtime missionary to China, he said this, he said, It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Do you want to change your child's heart in some way? Do you you want to change your neighbor's heart in some way? Do you want to change your spouse's heart in some way? Do Do you pray for it? Relentlessly, tenaciously, ongoing prayer for a change of heart? Or do you look to yourself, your own abilities, your own resources, and just try to somehow persuade that person to change? Maybe, maybe try to coerce or manipulate that person to change somehow. Nehemiah and his friends prayed relentlessly. Man, that king, oh Lord, the king whose heart is, is, is turned against you, against this building of Jerusalem, his heart is nothing but a stream of water in your hand. You can turn his heart wherever you will, Lord God. Give me success. Give me favor, O oh God, with this foreign pagan king. So there it is, Nehemiah. And he's faced with this daunting task. Impossible task, really, of returning to Jerusalem to, to rebuild. Needing a king's heart to change in order for it to happen. He doesn't look to his own resources, his own abilities. He does first things first. He drops to his knees. And he prays. And man, God will answer his prayers in some powerful ways. And you know what? God wants us to learn how to pray like Nehemiah. That's a model for us. God wants us to learn how to pray mature, kingdom-focused, persistent, together types of prayer in our life groups. Or as an entire church coming together in those kingdom prayer nights and other times. God wants us to learn how to pray like this man, Nehemiah, and his friends. I encourage you to practice it now. Praying in your life groups. Come to the kingdom prayer night. Let's pray together. May God teach us to pray like Nehemiah. But here's the thing. If you walk away from this passage and all you get out of it is be like Nehemiah. Pray like Nehemiah. If that's all you get, you miss the point. Because this Old Testament passage, just like every other, it ultimately points to Christ. The Jesus Storybook Bible for Kids says every story whispers His name. At this point in history, Jesus would not come for another 400 years. 
And yet this story here, it still whispers the name of Christ. <laughs> and what does, this, what does this story right here tell us? What does it whisper to us here? I think it says this. We need a better intercessor. We need an infinitely better intercessor. You know, what Nehemiah does in this passage, he's interceding. He's praying for other people. That's what intercession is. You're praying for other people. And Nehemiah is interceding for people. And when Nehemiah intercedes here, praying for other people, God does some amazing things. Nehemiah will eventually lead the final wave of exiles out of Persia. He'll build a wall. He'll lead the people back to God. But here's the thing. When you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah, you don't see a total success. You actually see tons of failure at the end of the book of Nehemiah. The temple doesn't have near the glory it had in former days. The presence of God is no longer dwelling in the temple. The people are still slaves to Persia, even though they're living back in Israel. And the people have been led back to God to some degree. But the people, even at the end of the book of Nehemiah, they are seriously struggling to obey God. You know, Nehemiah, he went back to the people with a message. And you know what his message was to the people? We've got to do better. We disobeyed God and we were cursed. And if we now want to be blessed by God, we must do better. We must obey God's old covenant laws more carefully. And Nehemiah does help the people do a little bit better. But at the end of the book, they're still struggling to obey. In chapter 13, the last chapter of this book, they're intermarrying with other nations, which God told them at the time not to do. They're, they're violating the Sabbath, the, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And the curse and the wrath of God's law is still hanging over their heads. Nehemiah, when they violate the Sabbath in the final chapter, Nehemiah says this in Nehemiah thirteen seventeen. Connor, do you have it? Listen to what he says. The end of the book. They violate the Sabbath. He says, what is this evil thing that you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not our fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. The curse and the wrath of God's law still hanging over their heads. we got to do better and yet they just can't do good enough. Nehemiah, through his intercessions, man, he accomplished some, some great things. You know, in some ways, Nehemiah worked a great salvation here for the people, but not really, because there was still so much failure at the end of the book. And man, the whole picture there, it just whispers to us, we need a better intercessor. And man, the good news is that we have one. We have one 400 years after this right here. God, God would send the one and only true and perfect intercessor to this earth, Jesus Christ. Like Nehemiah, Jesus would pray for people. 
intercede for others. But man, Jesus would do much more than just pray. You know, you know what Jesus would do? Jesus came to kill the curse. He came to kill it. The Bible says in Galatians 4 that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus was born underneath this old covenant Mosaic law. He was bound to obey it. And he did. Every last rule and regulation of the old covenant law, Jesus Christ fulfilled it. He died on the cross and he said, it is finished. I've done it. I fulfilled all of the old covenant law. And because of his sinless obedience to that old covenant law, Jesus earned from the law an eternal blessing. The law said, if you obey, you will be blessed. And he obeyed. And he was blessed. But the crazy thing is, Jesus then willingly chose to give up his blessing. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sin of people who had and who would violate God's law. And Jesus didn't just take the sin. You know what he took? He took the curse attached to that sin upon himself. Galatians chapter 3 says that on the cross, Jesus Christ became a curse. And Jesus then prayed, interceded on that cross. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Interceding on the basis of his sacrifice. And he then died and rose again, conquering the curse of the old covenant. Then you know what he did? He just initiated a much better covenant with much better promises. The new covenant The Old Covenant said, if you obey, you'll be blessed. But the New Covenant now says, Jesus obeyed. Trust Him. And you will be blessed. The Old Covenant said, you got to do better. And the New Covenant now says, Jesus did better. Trust Him. Jesus made a way to get out from under that curse. Man, that's such great news for us. You know why? Because we're born under the curse. We're born under the curse of God's old covenant law. We're born under the curse of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. We've all disobeyed it in multiple ways. We all have. And because of that sin, you grow up underneath the curse and wrath of God's law. And you are heading quickly towards an eternal hell. And the old covenant threatens, saying, you better do better. But the new covenant now comforts, saying, Jesus did better. Trust Him. And the second you do that, the second you trust Him, guess what? Your curse is gone. Your your curse is gone through Jesus' intercessions and His sacrifice for you. You know that picture of Jerusalem? Fire, shame, destruction, the picture of the curse, that's what Jesus took for you. The fire, the shame, the trouble, the brokenness, the destruction. He took it if you trust in Christ. And listen, if you've truly come to Christ in faith, you will make it all the way home to heaven. You will make it. You know why? Jesus is interceding for you right now. He's praying for you right now. Here it is. Hebrews 
Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You draw near to God through Christ, faith in Christ, Jesus will always be interceding for you. And you will make it home because His prayers never fail. Jesus is the infinitely better Nehemiah. Through the death and resurrection and intercessions of Christ, He saves you from your exile in sin and death and He brings you into the true promised land which is heaven. And Revelation 22.3 says that in heaven there is no longer any more curse. So learn to pray like Nehemiah, sure. But man, trust in and follow Christ, the infinitely better intercessor. Lord, we thank you for our intercessor, Jesus. You can see him praying all through the Bible. We see him. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. He's raising his eyes up to heaven and praying. Praying, praying, praying for his disciples, but also praying for everybody who would ultimately trust in what the disciples would say. Jesus interceding right there. Right there for, for your people, oh Lord. You can see him on his knees at the Garden of Gethsemane. My Crying out, Lord, take this cup, this cup of curse away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. We see him praying on the cross. Father, forgive them. We see him interceding now at your right hand. Father, for all those who come to you through him. Father, we thank you for our intercessor. Great Jesus, infinitely, infinitely better than Nehemiah. Working an infinitely better salvation than the one Nehemiah wrought. We thank you for a better covenant enacted on better promises. We thank you, Father God, for the hope that we have. We thank you, Father, that you're a covenant-keeping God. In the old covenant, you said, if you love me and obey me, you'll be blessed. And Jesus did it. Loving you perfectly, obeying you perfectly, receiving that blessing, and then giving it up for anyone who would trust in him. We just rejoice in this news. It's good, Father. We love you. We bless you. And we thank you for it now. In the name of Jesus, amen.